a person with a disability living in an able-bodied world felt like an outcast a lot of times. But the church, I didn't. The church, I, I found a home, a place where I belonged, a place where I was loved. Not only that, but really empowered to figure out who I was and my gifts and to do things I never thought I could do, like be a priest of the church. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the Courageous Conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Hello, John. Hi, Kiva. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well. Well, welcome everyone to our Race to Social Justice podcast series. I'm Kiva White. I am the black guy. And I'm John <laughs> Kepner, the white guy. Kiva and I share the love of the letter K, K for Kiva, K for Kepner, and K for our thirst for knowledge. Mm. It's what uh, you call Kiva the K factor. That's right. The K factor. Knowledge is power and knowledge is necessary. And so we all like to dispense knowledge here at the Race to Social Justice podcast. And our goal is really to promote racial and social equity and justice through honest and even often sometimes difficult dialogue. What me and John, we call our courageous conversations. You know, over the years, John and I have found that our discussions with each other have really deepened our respective understandings of racism and a wide range of other forms of uh, social inequities in our society and our personal responsibilities to um, um, really make this world a better place for all. And it really led us to uh, invite guests to share their honest experiences and learnings around this topic. And we hope these podcast conversations uh, will help our listeners and even our viewers and even our guests uh, in their own personal journeys uh, as we really dive into these discussions. So please subscribe, please uh, click the like button, and, and join us on this race to social justice. So, John, who is our, our guest today? <laughs> well, our guest, I'm delighted to introduce the Reverend Emily Richards, um, who happens to be, uh, full disclosure, the uh, priest in charge at the Episcopal Church that I go to in, in White Marsh, Pennsylvania. Um, and um, Emily is a, a proud native of Kentucky. Uh, which means that she loves horse racing and particularly basketball, but we'll try to, we'll try to stay away from that topic. Uh -huh. We've, we've had a previous uh, uh, focused uh, discussion about basketball with another guest. Um, Emily um, was educated at the uh, University of the South, uh, mm -hmm. where she got her divinity degree and her master's of divinity. And um, she's been next year, she will have been a priest for 20 years. That's wow. Right. <laughs> 2003. Um, she came to our church from a church close by in Glenside. But before that, she um, served as a vicar at St. At Albans Episcopal Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. And then she was an assistant rector at um, uh, St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Richfield, Connecticut. Uh, and she's been very active in our what we call a deanery, which is a kind of an association of uh, Episcopal churches in our in our region, and she's been chaplain for the Champions of the Holy Cross. You can maybe hmm. tell us what the Champions of the Holy Cross are, but anyway, um, uh, Emily and I had when we met, we had a discussion about social justice and racial equity and that sort of thing, 
And, um, and uh, what we'll see, I hope today in discussing with her, that's general subject that she has three different perspectives mm-hmm. on that subject. Okay, so uh, unique perspectives. So uh, without further ado, I guess I'm start. I'm going to ask the first question, right? right. Well, first of all, thank you all for having me. Thank you. Quite welcome. You will will find Emily to be very enthusiastic. She's going to be a great. I like like enthusiasm. That's what we need. need. When we run in this type of race, we need that. We We do. We do. Let's let's jump in, John. Good. So let's start with your origin story. You grew up in Kentucky. Uh, Tell us about your dad and your mom and your early childhood, uh, particularly as it relates to the subject at hand today, where things you experienced as a child and growing up. Yeah. So yeah, I am a native Kentuckian. I've lived in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for 13 years and before that in Connecticut. So you can kind of still hear my Southern accent, but you know, It's been a while since I've lived in Kentucky, but I grew up there, generations of family, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents are from Kentucky. Actually, both my brothers still live in Kentucky, um, so the roots are deep there. Um, I grew up in, you know, the South, (laughs) and a white person in the South, in pretty much a white bubble, um, uh, a pretty affluent, well-educated, um, Episcopal family, um, and had great opportunities because of my family, a very, my, my parents, I am who I am today because of my parents and the values they instilled in me, um, and the sense of passion and care and respect you know, I received from them. Um, They were, my father grew up in the Episcopal Church, my mother did not, Um, but a very, so Lexington, Kentucky, so, you know, a city of about 300,000, but seemed like a very small world to me, Um, and um, felt very loved and supported Um, by my family, very close-knit family. Um, But part of my early story that has (laughs) influenced me and my view on social justice issues is that when I was six months old, I became very, very ill. Mm. I was the first child, so the oldest child of my parents. They were at the time 24 and 26. (laughs) and I became very very ill and it took a long time for I ended up having to go to the University of Kentucky Medical Center for a doctor to finally diagnose me with me with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis which is an immunology disease illness Um, and for the first six years of my life was in constant constant chronic pain and as a baby, I mean, my, my parents tell stories of, they would touch me, you know, you're a newborn, you wanna hold them, you wanna rock them, you feed them. And I would scream mm-hmm. the top of my lungs cause it was so, cause my joints, because that's what it is. It's a, you know, rheumatic fever, get that a rheumatology disease. Um, 
And so it was, my joints were inflamed and I was in huge amounts of pain. And, uh, you know, doctors really didn't know what to do because it's so rare at that age. And um, went through a lot of different kinds of medication and treatments and was in physical therapy at the age of two. <laughs> um, and then after six years old, the disease kind of burned itself out. I know doctor likes to say that. They don't like to say I'm in remission, but I haven't had any of the symptoms. But what, what happened was that the illness was so severe that it severely crippled my joints. And so from the time of really age 10 until age 20, I had 10 surgeries and I'm 50 now. And in the past 30 years, I've had six surgeries, which is pretty good when in a 10 year span, I had about 10 surgeries. So I lived with a physical disability. I still do. And um, can get around thanks to the work of phenomenal orthopedic surgeons and assistive devices. Um, but because of that, I mean, that experience just shaped my whole life and view of the world um, and of other humans that live on this earth with me. And it just gave me a, a sense of compassion for others who felt like that they didn't belong and were outsiders and were mm. treated differently because of the way they looked mm. or, you know, um, I can tell lots of stories about, you know, ableism <laughs> over the years, but um, so, yeah, so it really did. And so for me struggling as a young person to find a place where I belonged in an able-bodied world, a person with a body that didn't work the same and treated differently and discriminated mm. against because of that. Um, and at the same time, and this has been my adult journey, is realizing that because of the color of my skin, I have received great privileges and because mm. of the care that I received from my parents and because they could afford to send me to the best doctors and all of that, you know, I, I, you know, have had great opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I think it was in the past few years, I read something that the group of Americans who are the poorest and who are, you know, considered the most on the margins of society are people of color with illness, you know, and have the least opportunity and support. And it just, you know, it just, it just hit me because, because of the color of my skin, even though I felt as a child and still as an adult, sometimes as much, uh, very much of an outsider, I still have had such great privilege. And so that's something that as an adult, I've been grappling with um, and, 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 and really working towards, you know, in my role as a pastor, a preacher, teacher, you know, how do we make our world a more just world where that is not the case, mm. where that is not the case, that everybody has like the opportunities I've been able to have and overcome obstacles that I have.
and so that, yeah. So, you know, mm -hmm. that is a really important part of who I am. And I think help me has helped me have compassion and understanding for others who, um, you know, have been treated differently and, you know, discriminated against. You said you have plenty um, of stories. Could you tell us one that really could bring this home in a personal way for our listeners? In terms uh, well, of, I'll tell in you when it's kind of funny. Yeah, I'll tell you when that's kind of funny because you do have to sometimes laugh at some of these things. But mm -hmm. I, I remember because I used it as a teaching. I use it. So before I was ordained uh, an Episcopal priest, um, I taught. And guess where I taught? Mississippi. Boy, was that a, that was an interesting time. I taught in an Episcopal school and lived in Mississippi for three years. Mm -hmm. um, but I taught and I was, you know, I had students, and so they always, they were very, of course, high school students asking me tons of questions and, and everything, and, and um, trying to understand my point of view and how I live and move and have my being in this world. And I took my students to Italy. We had the great opportunity of going on this trip. And beforehand, I had said to them, now, you're just going to experience what it's like with me in a wheelchair in the airport. Mm -hmm. and just be prepared and they were like at the time I was Miss Barr because I was still single at that time and they're like, oh Miss Barr but they've got to know that you're the teacher and you're the one in authority and I said let me just tell you because I'm in this chair mm. what it's gonna be like and we went up to the counter and I had all the tickets you know I'm with like 10 kids and I'm clearly the one that has the tickets and organizing the trip and the person, first of all, didn't look me in the eye, <laughs> looked at the, you know, I was young, but still, you know, in my 20s and looked at the 14 year old. And I kept answering the questions and then they kept, they kept talking to mm. the teenager mm. and then, you know, or this happens a lot slow down their speech or get very loud <laughs> again mm. like um and I actually this the student of mine who was pushing me in the wheelchair got so frustrated kind of righteous indignation and said excuse me ma'am but this is our teacher she is our teacher and we wouldn't be going on this trip if it wasn't for her and the poor woman at the desk was like, and then later I said, didn't I tell you? And they're like, oh my gosh, we had no idea, Miss Barr, what it was like. But again, it was a great teaching moment for these students that it was like, really, this is what it's like to live in your body. This is what it's like to be in the world as a disabled mm. person. And I was like, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's just, I just will never forget that because I, I really use it as a teaching moment. And, wow. and I said, so I hope that the next time you see someone in a wheelchair, you don't treat them the same way that this person at the yeah. end treated me. Yeah, we, I mean, we 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 call those microaggressions. Those exactly. And most of the time, people equate that with you know race based right. discrimination. And so I really appreciate you um, framing that from your lived experiences and right. and how you know how it impacted your life. Because I think 
microaggressions just by definition um, is a kind of like misleading in a sense because micro is small. You know, most people seem like it's a small little thing. Why are you getting so upset about something that's so little? But I always say it's a small thing that creates big problems in our society. Right. And so I, I'm, I really, you know, we learn a lot in this show by sharing our lived experiences and having these conversations. Right. So I really appreciate you being transparent and, and, sh- and sharing right. that. So, and like you said, so other people who are hearing or watching this, right. the next time you all see somebody in a wheelchair, you know, be respectful. Don't, don't make assumptions about, don't make assumptions know, correct. About yeah. About, yeah. About who they are and, and, and their uh, c- 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 capacity to contribute to society in general. Right. So I wanted, so I wanted to circle back on something you had mentioned uh, earlier in your, you know, in your discussion and sharing about your personal life, when you said um, you lived in, I'm quoting here, a, uh, the white, a white bubble in, yes. in Kentucky, right? So just growing up in the South and yeah. you know, what was it like for you? When and how did you become aware of race? Because, of you race. know, most, yeah, most people who grow up in, in those bubbles, it's an experience. And so share a little right. bit about your yeah. first experience of difference. So, I mean, you know, I, a white family, a white neighborhood, I went to, I had the opportunity to go to a private school. Actually, my private school was my really first experience of people of color. Now, they would be called the model minority because Mm. they were Asians, either, you know, from different parts of Asia um but that was kind of my first but my church the episcopal church a very white church um but i and i thought i thought i thought about this before being with you all the place that really brought about my awareness of race for the first time really was the college i went to the university of the south mm. um in swanee tennessee very white school. I went there for undergraduate and then went back for divinity school, as John said. And both times, though, I had significant experiences that I think helped me in my growing awareness of racism, my relationship to race. Um, When I was an undergrad, um, one of my favorite professors started a program in the summer for kids from Chattanooga, from urban Chattanooga, um, all kids of color to come up on the mountain and to really help them in their educational pursuits. And Mm. what was great, it wasn't just a summer camp, but it was like they formed relationships and helped these kids through high school and helped them, you know, determine what their next path was gonna be. And um, so invited me to come and be one of the counselors, summer camp, you know. It was my first, here I was, and even in college, very white, the University of the South. So you can imagine the history of the University Mm. of the South. Mm. Um, I I mean, I used to be in a minority in an able-bodied world, but I was a minority in a new way because all the kids, the campers were kids of color, and most of the counselors were kids of color. Wow. And here I was, this little white girl, you know, with a disability, 
I mean, of course, you know, I love people. And, you know, so I just, I learned so much. I grew so much. I, you know, they, what really, where I really grew is the fellow college students, because there's a small group of, of college students at Swanee that are people of color and a small minority. And of course, you know, I hadn't really engaged. I'll be honest. I still lived in that white bubble, even in college and that I became friends with them. And then for the rest of my time at college, you know, we still kind of lived in separate worlds, but, uh, you know, we were very intentional. Like I go to the black student union for parties and I was friends and I learned, I just listened and I learned so much like one experience that happened that I was so appalled about, but you know, you hear this so often. Um, we were having a picnic and one of my fellow counselors, a black, young black man, I don't know what he was doing, but he had a knife out. I'm not kidding you. Someone saw him with a knife and called the police. Mm. You know, this is Swanee, Tennessee on a mountain, so safe. He was a college student, you know, yeah. he was a, you know, he was a Swanee student. And I was, I was furious, kind of like those students with me when I was a teacher and they couldn't believe how I was being treated as a person. Mm -hmm. I was furious for him. I couldn't believe it. I was like in tears and I was just like, how do you, this is just awful. And, and he just, Emily, I deal with this all the time and this was in the 1990s yeah like i deal with this all the time mm. and um so gosh my my sense of of myself and and my sense of my place in the world and others place in the world and so that started me on that journey and just i just wanted to learn more from from my new friends and their experiences and of course the the, the high school kids, they, you know, they wanted to learn from me. They're like, they would want to do my hair because they weren't used to a white girl's hair. And, you know, and then I'd ask questions of them about, well, tell me about, you know, just things that we just take for granted. And mm -hmm. we don't, we, because we are in bubbles or whatever, we, we don't get to experience the very humanness of someone else and, instead yeah. of stereotypes. And so, that and then let me just tell you quickly the other mm -hmm. so I, I did that for for two summers that camp and and it really was an amazing amazing experience I learned more than I mean I received more than those kids received from me um, but um, then when I returned to Swanee for seminary divinity school we had a the dean of the seminary, we had an interim dean for one year and he had been the Bishop of Mississippi in the 19th, or he'd been a priest in Mississippi in the 1960s. He later became the Bishop, white mm -hmm. man, white man of privilege, Mississippi, you know, grew up in Mississippi. Um, and he had been a leader a religious leader in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. Wow. Um, and in fact, 
when James, Mar he was the chaplain at Ole Miss and the priest of the church there, there in, okay, where is Ole Miss? Now I can't remember. But anyway, there at Ole Miss, the priest, um, he was there when James Meredith, he hmm. was there helping escort James Meredith onto the campus. Hmm. And he got up and preached in the pulpit at an all-white Episcopal church the day before this happened about the sin of racism in the white church. Mm. And he was booed. And, wow. you know, he hung in there. And then all this, and it was just so inspiring. And he, he you know, continued. He was one of the only white clergymen who stood with his black brothers in the fight in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. And he's unknown, but again, he's one of those people that it's like, he's one of my personal saints. Mm -hmm. And he was so inspiring. And he said he, what formed him is when he was in seminary at Swanee, um, all of the faculty of the divinity school left en masse because the school would not allow kids of color, black mm -hmm. students, and the entire faculty of the divinity school resigned. Wow. wow. And he said, sure. their witness told me, if I'm going to be a priest in the church, I better step up mm. yeah. and do this. So, so both of those, so being at this very white school, the University of the South, I learned so much. Right. So yeah. we, we talk about um, the word allyship, like how to be right. an ally in this, you know, racist social right. justice. You know, Dr. King had white counterparts that right. helped him and yes. they were allies. So how, what would you what would you say to a person who is stuck in this bubble? What would yeah. you say to encourage them to, you know, start on this journey of embracing, you know, the beauty that's in the world and all the difference right. that's in the world today? What, what would you say to that person that's still stuck in, in, in using your terms, the bubble? Right. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I feel blessed. I'm going to use religious language here that I was confronted by that and 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 had wonderful, you know, friends, black friends, white friends who who helped me um, learn about myself. I mean, I do think that the journey starts within you yeah. and. I think also having the humility, and I've gotten it wrong a lot, Kiva. I've gotten it wrong a lot, but having the humility of really listening and not making those assumptions. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like having people make assumptions about me. And so really trying to listen to my friends of color, my colleagues of color, mm -hmm. um, and not make assumptions about their lives their experiences so i think it starts there yeah um and and not you know the white savior complex yeah white progressives or white christian progressives are really mm. good at and we mean well and we yeah. want to help but then we come in and we think we have all the answers yeah um, intent impact intent versus impact Right. So, I mean, I think the first thing it starts with is just listening yeah, and good. learning and, and wanting to be in relationship. And then 
for me, I've had to do a lot of work on myself mm -hmm. and, um, and my own story. And, um, and then to just ask, ask your friends, how can I, you know, how can I be an ally? Um, mm -hmm. But I think if the relationship, if the trust, if the storytelling doesn't happen first, it's hard to get yeah. to that place because I've had friends of color say, you got it all wrong, Emily. And mm -hmm. I could, okay, well, let's, I want to talk through this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So, but, and I'm still on the journey of being an ally, you know? Yeah. And That's I awesome. know I have a long way to go. I like you. I like the fact you're using the word journey because we, you know, the title of this podcast is the race of social justice because we're we're constantly running and ra racing and trying to get to the finish line of right. human human dignity and, and, and right. treating everybody uh, uh, in a just way. And it's a constant run. And, you know, like you mentioned, what was experienced with the young man with the knife that happened back in 1990. Uh, we did a, a, a a previous podcast uh, when we were talking about the Rodney King, and that was almost uh, 20, 30 something years ago. So it's still happening. We are still running this race. Right. And so right. I, I, I like how you offered um, some words of encouragement to those who are trying to, you know, trying yeah. to just get out of that bubble. So I, I appreciate that. John, what, what are your I, thoughts? Yeah. Well, I have, a, I've been yeah. thinking as you've been talking <clears throat> that um, you could look at being disabled or being black or being different as an obstacle, or you could look at it as an opportunity. Yeah. Mm, now yeah. I have the impression that um, you took the latter route. Yeah. Uh, and it started earlier than your, you know, awakening of racial justice with your disability. Right. So could you talk about sort of this mindset yeah. that, that, that people yeah. who are different have right. to go through. I have, I don't have that burden. Right. I, I'm, I'm a little different now because I'm older than most people, but I've told you John this, that I always say that my being a person with a disability, this is the one minority group that everyone joins someday mm. because of ages of, but yeah, John, I think, and you know, there have been a lot of times where I have it, where the obstacles in front of me, I, I don't know if I want to continue the race. And that's where allyship helps. You know, I've, I had amazing parents. I had friends. I had, that's why community, whether it's church or whatever, but community is so important. Mm -hmm. Community, having your community to run the race with you or to be on the sidelines giving you that drink of water when you're about ready to just, you're on your last leg of the marathon, you know, and, and cheering you on. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think I, some of it is what was instilled in me from my parents and they were different. I mean, my mother is just, she was out there in front like no one is going to tell you, you can't do something. She was my very vocal advocate. My father was quieter and worked hard to care for me. Um, but both of them just said, you know, you can do whatever you put your mind to, Emily. We believe in you. And I think 
that's the thing I realized is that how many people don't have that person. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it takes one mm -hmm. person in your life. It doesn't have to be a mother or a father. It could be a teacher mm -hmm. or a grandmother or mm -hmm. a friend or, but just having that, you know, so I still hear their voices in my head that, you know, as hard as it gets, you can do this. Um, I think, yeah, I, I mean, there is some of, just like the model minority, there is the model person with a disability. I mean, you know, I don't know any difference. I don't know what it's like living in the able body, in a body that works well. And I have had friends who were in a wheelchair because they were in an accident. Like I actually had a college friend. I mean, we were the only two disabled people at my college <laughs> at that time better now but um because it wasn't very accessible but he was angry 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 he had a major chip on his shoulder and but I would tell my friends are like why are you just so much more positive and it's easier for to be around you and I'm like I don't know what I've lost he was mm. 16 and an athlete and was in a car accident he's mm. 20 mm. He's, he, I don't know what I've, you know, that was a blessing in disguise for me. I don't know any different. Mm. Um, and he's grieving and he is angry and he's going through that stage of grief. And we just got to let him do that and, and honor that. Um, mm. And so, but also I've learned like, you know, the sunshiny person with a dis inspirational person with a disability gets you a lot further than being the angry, bitter, you know. So some of it is 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 what culture, you know, you just learn how to be in the world. And I'm not saying that it's false. I mean, but I do, there are times that I'm like, and as I get older, learning to be with, to be with people, no, I'm not feeling great today. And I'm not gonna do it with everybody, but no, my body hurts. No, I don't feel good hmm. um, because I was so conditioned, right? And, you know, it's like that model minority or, you know, I'm sure Kiva, you've had experiences how I have to not be that. I don't want to be that threatening present, you know, be non-threatening. Yeah, I, I just had an experience. Uh, what's today? Uh, this was yesterday, by the way, in regards to that. And yeah. so. You know, I you know I hear you talk uh, you talk uh, a lot about um, the physical trauma of, right. of you know, of, and I'm using your word being uh, right. being disabled, um, and there's a psychological component to that yeah. too. It could be a yeah. psychological component. You know, I know as a, as a man of color, as an African American male, I'm able bodied but there's and I and I I still get some psychological trauma every time I turn a corner and you know I pass a police car and he comes right behind me. There's something yeah. psychologically that happens internally that I can't describe. It's this tenseness. It's this, it's, you know, I can't describe it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, like psychological. Yeah. yeah there, has, there been, has there been a time where you experienced that as a result of, and you know, and, and I want to talk a little bit of, too about um, the word disability. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. What, what, I mean, certainly physical trauma, uh, years of, uh, of, being in and out of hospitals, you know, I always say that 
often the sense of isolation, which we've all kind of experienced with COVID, but the sense yeah, yeah, anyone yeah, yeah. with an illness, a chronic illness, the psychological sense of isolation can be much worse than the physical pain, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I've had to work through a lot of that. And again, I feel like my parents supported me so well on that. I mean, from an early age, like, you know, working through that psychological and realizing that that was legitimate, like you, my psychological pain, not just the physical pain. And mm-hmm. we're not just going to help you with your body, but we're going to help you emotionally and psychologically. And, yeah. Uh, but yes, yes. I mean, it, it is hard. Yeah. So there are um, burdens Yes. that people who um, are different yeah. in various ways have to bear. Now, what, what impressed me, and I'd like you to, if you feel comfortable right. talking about this, um, you seem to um, have a way to put people at ease yeah. with your disability. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, could you talk about how you do that and how you (laughs) do that? And, you know, is is that a burden? Um, You know, I don't have to do that. Right. Mm. Um, Sure. Um, It it is. A person with a physical disability. It is always on us to make other people feel comfortable with us and our different bodies and for some of us are different how our minds work you know intellectual disabilities and um so at times it can be a a burden i've also seen though um because i'm pretty again because of all the work i've done on myself i'm pretty comfortable in my body and i would rather like I mean, I am at ease with with myself, and so that helps me be at ease with other people. But like, I'd rather have a conversation with people so that they can become at ease because I do feel like part. I get tired of this, but part of me, part of what I'm supposed to do is educate and help so that the next generation of kids growing up with disabilities, maybe people will think twice. I mean, I love kids. I adore kids because they are so real and so honest. I just recently was at a pool at summertime and I'm in my wheelchair and this little kid, he's eight years old. First of all, he fixates on my feet. Like I'm in the wheelchair. You would think you would say you're in a chair. No, my feet, your feet are weird. And I'm like, yeah, they kind of are. <laughs> and so we just start talking and his mother comes up to me and I learn his name and he learns. And then I'm a person and I'm a human being. And then I'm like, you know, and then his mom and she was great. She didn't, she didn't shy away from it. And she's like, he's really chatty. I'm like, it's great. He can ask me anything because guess what? This eight-year-old is then is going to think the next person isn't weird or strange, mm-hmm. just different. I'm like, I'm just different. How are yeah. you different than other, you know, so. And, then and, and, and yeah. you need, you need physical help from other I, people. I did. To navigate. I mean. I do. And, 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 so, and so you have, you have said, I, I, 
heard you say or someone repeated what you said is people have been touching me all my life. I'm okay with it. Right. Don't worry about helping me. Right. And and take my arms, help me stand up, whatever. Right. And if you do just be honest and say, you know, and I will, I will say if that's okay or not okay, because I've been in this body 50 years, I, you know, know how to navigate. And I also know that most people don't know how to. And so, um, yeah, so just ask those, but adults were just too darn polite. Instead, like you said, Kiva, it's microaggressions. Instead of just saying, well, I'm kind of uncomfortable with you. I mean, and I know we can't do that with everybody, but that's why I love kids. They're just so refreshing because they're just so real. And I'm like, I, yeah. I wonder the same things. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think I think part of it is the the, the piece you talk about, Emily. Is is it's got to be a self reflect reflection and self analysis yeah. before you could say first right. to that person that I'm uncomfortable with you to them. Yeah. You got to say it to yourself. Well, because that's true. I think that's very important. Um, I, I wanted to t- I wanted to talk about the word disability for a second yes. because yes. Um, I can recall about a year or so a year or so ago I was doing a training. Well, this is actually more than a year. It was before COVID nineteen. I was doing an in person training, and I was talking a little bit about diversity. You know the right. different social identities that we come with in society. Right. And I used the word. Uh, I said I, I I I like using the word physically impaired. I really don't like using the word dis- disability because the word, the, the, the dis, right. particularly in my, so I, I grew up in New right. York City and the dis, when you dis somebody, you disrespecting that person. The right. dis is kind of like a negative connotating word. So you have right. disqualified, you right. have disadvantaged, you have disengaged. Uh, and so I try to use the word impairment. And I, I thought that was a culturally sensitive, more culturally sensitive word. Yeah. I, I know um, back in the 80s and 90s, the word handicap was being was transitioned from we didn't right. use we don't hear handicap anymore. We use so this whole language yeah. transition, right? So what's the what's the what's the correct word? Like as I said impairment, I said somebody was physically impaired. A lady came up to me and said, Oh, well, you know, my son is my son is developmentally. This, right. you know, I, I use developmentally right. disabled too. She said, no, we try to say that he's um, developmentally different. Right, right. You know, he, and, he, um, you know his, yeah. he, he has different abilities. So what's the positive reframe yeah. of the strength base? What would you, what would you yeah. say? Well, uh, yes, I've been called it all. I mean, you know, um, I mean, I grew up with being called handicapped. I think that was, but I've even been called crippled, which that I cringe oh, at. Deaf, mute, lame, all those words have been moved out Ooh, of the, out of our right. vocabulary right. as society transitions. Yeah, but there's still some words that are ne- negatively connotated. Yes. Um, I, you know the new word that I love that doesn't apply to me, but I love the word neurodiverse. Oh wow! Okay, I don't know if you've heard that, but people no, with intellectual because it's such a range. I mean, that's the thing. There, there's in the disability community or whatever. There's just such a range of different of differences, and I love that. I wish I could come up with something physically different, but neurodiverse. Um, yeah, I mean, differently abled. Um, differently abled. I, I, I think that. for me, the biggest thing is, and this is in recent years too, but I, it's, instead of saying the disabled person, the blind person, 
as an identifier, as the first identifier. Yeah. It's a person with. So it's yeah. a person. Oh, okay. You're a person. Yeah, yeah. You're a human yeah, and so, and social work, first. In social work, we call that um, the person, uh, person-centered or person-first perspective. Yes. Like instead of calling somebody a drug addict, um, he is he has an addiction issue, or Miss Johnson right. is afflicted by drug addiction. But yeah, right. the person first perspective. That I think is a change that I want to see, and I even don't do it for myself all the time because I'm again I'm conditioned by the world that I live in. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, um, that is really and. And from my religious background, you know, and the parts of my faith that I struggle with in the Bible, you know, of all the healings, you know, it's always the blind, the lame, the the leper, like that's the only thing they're known for. And so Mm -hmm. changing that, reframing it is to be like, yes, the person who is right. Or who has. Right. And so I try really hard. I'm a person with a physical disability, you know. But yeah, I, I like physical. Um, diverse. I like physical. physical but yes, but I tried to do differently abled. But I don't know. You know, I don't know. It's it just, sounds so cliche. To me, it sounds so cliche. It's like, like it's a right. cliche. Like, I want to be authentic when I meet people. So I try to. Right. And it's, it's, it's just like, you know, it's, it's, right. it's one of those things you have to have to be yeah. culturally sensitive to. Yeah, you do. Um, I'll tell you a funny thing my husband says, and this is just a joke. He calls me handy capable. Oh, <laughs> you know, I was I was I was handy actually capable. thinking about you're handy I like capable. <laughs> I, I was thinking about was you were talking physically enabled. Right. She's right. a physically enabled person. Um, right. So you touched on, and, and, you know, we've gone now all these minutes and haven't really talked about religion. But you are a, you are a priest. Right. And, and, and uh, I, so I'm really yeah. curious uh, how, yeah. how you find, what is, what is the theology behind um, uh, anti-racism and um, discrimination? Where, where do you find uh, that, uh, inspiration. Yeah. Well, I mean, for, for me, it is in the message of Jesus, even though there are problematic things for me as a person with a disability, with some of the stories of the Bible, but I always say we're the ones that always focus on the cure. Jesus does always focus on the person. It's always Mm -hmm. about, it is always about meeting Mm -hmm. the person where they are. Mm -hmm. Seeing them, acknowledging them, acknowledging their pain, their suffering, and freeing them from that. Whether it's an illness or whether it's an outcast person or whether it's, you know, a sinner or tax collector or whatever. But but for me, Jesus' message is the message of love. And, and Jesus' message is about we all... We're, we're called to be people of love, love God and love one another, period, period. And that's actually from, you know, the Jewish heritage, love God is from the commandments. But, um, but so for me, it's, 
trying to follow in his way of love. And mm. so when we, whatever it is in another person, if, if we are intentionally or unintentionally holding up those systems of oppression, because that's the other thing, you know, we look at the example of Jesus and what he was saying is the impressive empire of, you know, and the oppressive systems that were keeping people poor and hungry and suffering. And it wasn't just the empire, but it was also the religious systems that were oppressing people. He came, he was a political figure. When people say, oh, keep politics oh, yeah. out of the church, Jesus was as political as anyone. And he came to destroy those oppressive powers, mm. to say there is another way and, and how we treat one another and how we care for one another and how we have compassion for one another. Um, and, you know, I experienced it growing up in the church. A, a person with a disability living in an able-bodied world felt like an outcast a lot of times. Um, but the church, I didn't. The church, I, I found a home, a place where I belonged, a place where I was loved. Not only that, but really empowered to figure out who I was and my gifts and to do things I never thought I could do, like be a priest of the church. Um, and so, uh, and that comes out of the witness of, of Jesus. And so for me, following him and I, you know, do it, <laughs> I make mistakes all the time, but really realizing that in my own small way, I am called to help, you know, release the captives, give freedom to the captives release them from bondage and whatever and what I mean by that is that can mean a whole lot of different things and but but really help people find healing wholeness and freedom mm. in the name of Jesus wow. and, and it wasn't just your parents it was the community that they put you in a church that rallied around you and it was I made mean, you feel made, welcome and engaged to, you in the mainstream and gave of me a doing. place to be and not and not just be the little girl in the wheelchair in the pews that we all feel sorry for, but the young woman preaching from the pulpit, <laughs> you know, when mm -hmm. there weren't women preachers in my church, and certainly mm -hmm. not one that looked like me. Um, and mm -hmm. gave, let and really helped me claim my voice and claim my story and let that have meaning in other people and other people's yeah. lives. We have a, a member of our family uh, who is profound, was profoundly disabled from, from birth and uh, his mom and dad, it's a, it's a, a niece and a, a son, and they would take him to church mm. and the uh, people asked them to not bring him to church. Oh, and, and oh, that's that the reverse Reverse of what yes. you experienced. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I tell, I, when when I hear you when I hear you talk about this, 
I'm I'm not physically disabled. But I have I have I have experience as a as an African American man, yes. social disability, right. and and in terms of where I can go and where I cannot go and how you know all of those right. things. And so um, I how think yeah yeah yeah. So I mean so when and Kathleen Crenshaw, Dr. Kathleen Crenshaw talks about this concept. She frames this concept of intersectionality. And I know we, I just want to share this real quick. So she said, um, our social identities, depending on our social identity makeup, age, race, gender, sexual, sexual, sexual orientation, when those things pat cross, it will be the, what we call the difference maker and whether or not we uh, have lived experiences of privilege or lived experiences of oppression. And that race, the race identifier is the difference maker the first difference maker, and then the gender uh, identity is kind of like the second one. So what I mean by that is, let's say we have two individuals that are quote unquote disabled, right? right. And one is an Emily Richards and the other one is a Shaquan Jackson, Yeah. right? right. And they're into right. the same, the same thing, right. but the one difference maker of race will make a, a clear difference about that person's lived experience. And so I wanted to say to you, um, ask you, what would what 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 do you what do you think would be uh, different in the life of a person, who, a person of color, who may be in a similar situation as you? What would I say to a person, or what would I mean? You know, again, I and I think that this ties into my calling my vocation in the church but I do feel like is like again how can we as a society help folks help the person of color who is disabled um, have the same rights and privilege and opportunities and health care I mean essential rights you know health care education and I think that what I would hope and pray for someone in in a similar situation to mine but color of skin being different is that is that they find those advocates and allies to help them you know claim claim what they need and 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 share their voice and and be heard and when they feel discouraged and no one cares and no one listens, that they they have, whether it, whatever community is or whatever individual or, you know, I mean, I guess that's my hope and prayer because that's what got me through. And that was, that's what continues to get me through. And it's why I'm in the church, a very flawed institution, by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> with, a, with a, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I've seen it at its best. Yeah. And and I do know, I do know that the African-American, the church has been a place where they've been able to pray for that freedom, for yeah. that release from oppression, and to, yeah. to believe that Jesus is their savior, maybe not here right now, but hold on to that and have that hope, cling to that hope. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, that's what I would want for anyone in in a similar situation to mine yeah. to so that they will be heard and honored and and 
not yeah. ignored. Their cries not go unheard. Yeah. John, you so, use the word, uh, you use the word uh, burden, burden a couple of times throughout, throughout our conversation today. Um, there's a book out by um, Kimmel and Ferber called Privilege, and I use it in my, my the course I teach at Rutgers. And they use this concept and uh, uh, equating to a person who is African-American and let's say they had a disability or a person who is African-American and they may have uh, a different gender identity than the societal norm. They said that that person would experience what they call a double burden yeah, in society right. as, as a, as a, a comp in comparison to a white mm -hmm. counterpart who has the same... Mm -hmm. Same identity makeup, the same identity makeup. They could be disabled. They could be um, having a gender, you know, and they, yeah, but the same thing across the board, but that one difference make of race would create a double burden for that person of color in society. Right. Now, now yeah. Um, yeah. speaking of people of color, yeah, you have a person of color, a woman of color in your family. Yeah. So, this so is could you talk about yeah. that? Could so you um, I am a parent through the gift of adoption and mm. um, I have an almost 16 year old and she um, is, a, is an Asian American. She was born in China. We went over there and became parents and brought her home. And, you know, she is a you know, my greatest my greatest gift ever <laughs> is to be a parent, to be her mother. Um, mm -hmm. And I, in recent years, in COVID time, I mean, I, I always knew like, okay, I always wanted her to be proud of who she, again, just like my parents, how they instilled in me that sense of self-worth and dignity always wanted and so you know very proud of her heritage took her back to China when she was 10 and, mm. and went to the orphanage and had these experiences and met the man who found her and you know just mm. really pride in in that part of her story which could create shame for her um, mm. um and so really wanted to instill that in her. And um, so been open all along with her um, and want her to be proud of Asian American and grapple with what that means, that identity. But I will say in COVID, I mean, I, I just never, I got a glimpse, just a tiny glimpse. And I, I mean, a tiny glimpse of what it must be like for a mother of a black child and the fear just a little bit be because of the way she was all of a sudden perceived as you know discriminated against and prejudice and you know the chinese go back and the china you know illness or the you know what china flew mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and just how and she was even a little fearful um, because she had heard stories of her friends um, who are, you know, Chinese born and have been yelled at on the streets and, you know, treated differently. And of course, Asian Americans are the model minority and, um, and learn that. 
They mm -hmm. learn that it's deep within their DNA on how to be that smart, good American. Um, and the fearful, the fearfulness that all of a sudden I had for my precious child, who was just the most wonderful, beautiful, amazing creature ever. And people to look at her because of this one thing about her and because of her skin mm -hmm. and the way her face is and the shape of her face and yeah. her features. Yeah. Um, and it just hit, it, it hit me and it really took me, took me back. And I actually preached, I, I, I preached on this after, after George Floyd's murder, saying that what I cried about was his mother seeing this happen to him, um, mm. thinking about his family and, and just weeping for them. And, and, and just like, how do we live in a world where this can happen? <laughs> um, and so just that, and, you know, I, I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like to be a parent of a black child and worried about your sons going off and not coming back because mm. of, you know, they're killed um, mm. in the safe streets of their cities, supposedly. Yeah. Um, but just, just, it was like, I felt like overnight, all of a sudden, this fearfulness. Mm. Um, you, you, had, you, you, yeah. you, you, you had a, what we call a racial, a racially trauma, traumatized experience. And what, like, have, like that, that emotion that you're talking about, yeah. mothers go through that all the time. I know. And mothers of African-American children, um, children, particularly male, particularly boys. Male. Right, particularly but, males, yes. and so I mean, me and John, we talked. I think we talked about this, John, in our first and our you know back and forth interviews, our initial interviews, and in the launch of the uh, podcast series was having having to have the talk with your kids, uh, particularly particularly African American boys, because it's it's it could be it could be Trump traumatically uh, induced from a racial standpoint as an African a mother of an African American child. Let's say, for example. Um, sending him away to a school in Mississippi <laughs> or, right. in, or, or in Kentucky. Yeah, or in the South. <laughs> it can be, you know, it's a great thing that he's able to go to college, but in the back of in the back of her mind, she's constantly worrying about the what ifs. And so it sounds like you had a similar I had a moment of, you know, and I'm just like, oh my God, this is this is what how how do they how do they live? And how do they mm. still live with hope and joy? And, you know, why aren't they even, you know, I, I just, I just, just, just had this just deep sadness and anger and, you know, because of just my limited and, you know, she goes to a, to a racially diverse school and is totally respected and safe. And she goes to a church that, respects her and she's growing up in a family and all of that and yet like you send them out and you know yeah I, I just yeah so it opened my mind and heart and it gave me a new level of just empathy but also uh 
I don't know what the word is, but in awe, I mean, I use the word awe, mm -hmm. in awe of mm -hmm. mothers of children of color who, do, who have to go through this on a daily mm -hmm. basis. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and I mean, yeah, and I, I do worry about my daughter because of the United States China relationship and and I want her to be proud of and just saying no matter what the US government says or thinks about about China this is not about the people of China it's one government and another government and but the anger I think also that I worked so hard to instill in her that pride of who she is and, and, and self-worth and love and how society can take that away from you. Mm. And, you know, and keep realizing, mm. I just gotta keep working at that with her because yeah. she's been in these safe communities in her own yeah. bubble, very different bubble than I grew up in. And, and, you know, and we're glad, I'm glad she needs a different kind of bubble, but she's not always going to be in these communities that value. Yeah. Um, and she's an ally. She's a huge, I love it. She's a almost 16 year old and a huge, I love that she has so many friends who are diverse um, color and ethnicity and uh, religion and gender diversity and she is like all in about being an ally I mean mm -hmm. you know and I love that I love that I had to learn that really as an adult and she's getting mm -hmm. it as a kid yeah so wow. yeah well we, wow, we, awesome. are, <laughs> we are we are near the end of our time yeah this was great and, um, yeah. one of the questions we'd like to ask is uh, you know, who would your, who's your role model in the area of social racial justice? But I think maybe you already. I did. Mentioned, I mentioned did. So I will tell you that. the right Reverend Duncan Gray. Okay. Um, who is now in the nearer presence of God. Um, but look him up. Okay. He is one of those unsung. Yeah heroes of the civil rights movement in the thick of it in mississippi mm. wow. and um you know he and he, boy did he help transform the the white church in Miss, and i will say i i am so proud to be an episcopalian because of stories like his because the white privileged Episcopal Church in Mississippi was one of the only churches that was there in the civil rights movement with black sisters and brothers fighting the fight. Mm -hmm. And um, really, I'm very proud of that part of our yeah, history. Good, good heritage we have. It's a good and heritage. And uh, just to conclude, um, a couple of weeks ago, we did a really mm -hmm. wonderful, I thought it was terrific podcast with a fellow by the name of David Marinus, who wrote mm -hmm. about the first black basketball player in the SEC, Perry Wallace, mm -hmm. 
And I'm going to make sure that if you listen to any of our podcasts, I listen, listen to I'm that. Gonna, I really want to listen to the first because they talks a lot about Kentucky. Well, <laughs> and process. I will say that is a shameful part of our. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it is, and it, again, it's a reckoning I've had to. I've sure. had, to, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I love basketball, but yeah. So, but I that's. Yes, I will definitely oh, cool. watch that or listen and watch. <laughs> cool. Well, great. Well, th- thank great. you very much, Emily. Kiva, do you have any final I, questions? For no, I just, I just want to just thank you for your transparency and just, you know, educating us on your lived experiences and giving words of encouragement for those folks who may be uh, physically different in, right. in our society and, and how to, you know, make, make everybody feel welcome in this diverse world and, and so I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and, and, and joining us. And so yeah. thank you all uh, again. Thank you all for listening and watching. Please subscribe and join us again for another Courageous Conversation on our Race to Social Justice. Continue the journey, everybody. The Race to Social Justice podcast is produced, edited, and mixed at The Dream in Austin, Texas. Visit thedreamrecordingstudio.com for more info.